remember the whole structure of the Heidelberg is built around presenting the law of God twice. It presents the law of God at the beginning of the catechism to show us our sin and misery, to show us our need for a savior, that no amount of keeping of this by our part will ever save us. We just can't keep it enough. We can't keep it perfectly. And then the catechism walks us through the glorious progression of the gospel from the recognition of that need to receiving the gift of faith from God, taking hold of that faith as our own, trusting in Christ's keeping of the law for our salvation and not our own, how we live in response to that keeping, life together, life in the church, and then it comes back to the law to say now, now that your perspective on the law is different than it was before, the law is actually good for you. The law was death to you before all of those other questions and answers. And now the law is good for you because the law answers the question, how do I enjoy life with God? And the way to enjoy life with God is to live your life as closely aligned with the way God's life is in its existence. And as we come alongside God in that life, which we can only do by the law that he's revealed and by the power of the spirit that he provides. But when we do that, we have life, life abundantly. So this is the best way to live. And so then we go back to this with a different attitude. We come back to this with the attitude not of, I must keep this so I can live. Nope, we already realized sin and misery. Now we're alive in Christ. Exodus precedes Sinai. Remember what that means? What does that mean? What am I talking about? I can't hear you. Deliverance comes before the giving of the law. What happened at Mount Sinai? Law. Tablets come down. Here. Here's how to live before me. And in our brains, um, we think, well, that was in the Old Testament. Therefore, there was no grace present. There was just mean old God. And mean old God sent down these tablets from on high and said, you people better do this stuff or you're going to end up in bondage. But that's not what happened at all, is it? What happened first? They were in bondage. They were in bondage already. And God delivered them from that bondage. And then he took people who were delivered from that bondage and said, hey, would you like to stay out of bondage of your own making? Do this. Don't go back. What did uh, they say at the Grow Conference yesterday? Bill talked about dogs going back to their own vomit. Don't go back. Don't go back to slavery to sin. Don't go back to life under the curse. Walk this way. Exodus, then Sinai. Deliverance, then obedience. And if you, most people in our circles won't do this theologically. You can write it out on paper the correct way. But most of us, from time to time, or a lot of times, flip this practically. How do you know you flipped it practically? What are some signs that you could look for in your own life 
in a given time that says I'm, I'm getting this in reverse. Expecting unbelievers to live like Christians. Thinking that pagans aren't going to pagan, right? Or thinking that what unbelievers need most is to live like this. It's something we do when we look at unbelievers and they're making a mess of their lives. There's addiction or there's laziness or there's whatever else. And we think, you know what that person needs most is some law keeping in their life. They need to get their stuff together and keep this law. Is that what they need? No, they need Jesus. And when Jesus releases them from bondage, then this becomes useful. But if you give unbelievers this as a starting point, you, you, you've killed them. <laughs> you've, you've piled heavy loads. You have driven them to such despair that they will either dismiss this as ridiculous, no one could actually do this, or they'll bury themselves in guilt and shame because they think other people can actually do this and they're the ones that can't. You cannot go to unbelievers and start here. What else? What are other signs we can look for in ourselves that we're getting this backwards? Requiring the people around us to behave a certain way before we love them. Hmm. When we treat people like they will have our favor when they do what's right, we are falsely reflecting God and claiming that God is that way too. That if you'll act right, God will give you good things and love you. But if you can't act right, he's not going to love you. So you can't act right until he loves you. Pro tip. <laughs> until the love of God changes your heart and comes to you in his spirit, you can't act right. Pagan's going to pagan. What else? What are other ways we could see in ourselves that we've gotten the order wrong? We feel like our relationship with God is dependent on how we're performing. So we have highs and lows in our own. Yeah, we ride this emotional roller coaster in our relationship with God based on our performance. So when we have bad days, weeks, and months, we sort of go away in shame and then complain, by the way, that God feels far from us. And when we're doing great, we sort of come before God with a great bag full of self-righteousness and say, aren't you happy with me now, God? Kathy? Um, I've heard so many Christians, you know, say the thing like, you know, God blesses Chick-fil-A because they close on Sunday. Well, they do close on Sunday, which is a good thing. God can bless them for any reason he wants. We don't know if that's, the, you know, it's yeah. not a... The, the certainty is the problem, right? You get this. We should expect that in a universe that the divine architect organized, that you would generally find blessing from obedience and suboptimal results from disobedience. That's a reasonable general principle. What happens if you make that principle an absolute and you do so with certainty? Y'all remember Ecclesiastes? You remember Job's friends? Right? You cannot make sense of this world if your mental model is this unbreakable connection between doing good and getting good. What else? Actually, let me dig in on that one in, in another way. One of the signs for me that I'm getting this backwards 
is when I'm mad at God because I don't think I'm getting what I deserve. And I want to say to God, don't you see all this stuff that I'm doing for you? Don't you see all of this good behavior from me? And then you're going to do this to me? You're not going to give me this thing I want? Or you're going to introduce this complication to my life? God, are you not paying attention to what I've kept all of these since my childhood? That's one that stirs up in me is this, this frustration with my circumstances, with providence, because I think I deserve better. And why do I think I deserve better? Because I'm a good little law keeper, which, by the way, reveals that I'm breaking the first and the tenth and probably some in between. <laughs> Other ways? Feeling guilty or distant and wanting three simple steps. Mm. Getting back into fellowship with God. Believing, if I can paraphrase that, that the, the secret to a right relationship with God is something other than a relationship with God. <laughs> right? Believing that there's some mechanical process or steps I can go through to get right as opposed to, kids, when, you're, when you get sideways with one of your friends, when y'all are in a little fight, tiff, disagreement, somebody gets mad, it might take a while because we're sinful and we're stubborn and our feelings get hurt. How do you fix that? How does reconciliation take place? Do you talk to them? Do you hand them a checklist and say... Noah, if you'll do these seven things, we can be friends again. No, you talk to him, right? You restore the relationship, not you check some boxes. Husbands and wives, how does reconciliation take place? You, you have to press in to communication and talking and listening and confessing and forgiving. It's, it's a relational endeavor, not... Okay, I did 4A through 7B, and now it's your turn to do 8. That, that doesn't work. That's not how reconciliation takes place. Not with God either. Not with God either. When you get sideways with God, for lack of a better expression, the way to restore fellowship with God is to go to God and to confess and to draw near to him as he draws near to us and, and to to. Yes, confess our sin and repent of that sin, but to receive forgiveness, to be reminded of his favor and his acceptance and his love. It's not, all right, God, look, uh, we got off to a rough start last week, but I've kept at least 63% of these commandments this week, and I feel like that's good enough. We try that sometimes in our human relationships, don't we? Especially marriage. You make your spouse mad. And rather than go confess or repent of what you did, you're like, well, I'll just be extra nice in this completely unrelated, irrelevant thing for a day and a half. And then they'll be happy with me again. How's that work? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Why would that work for God? Why would it work for God if we sin against him, if we reject his love and his truth, and the way that we're going to make it up to God is by doing some totally unrelated thing that pretends the sin never happened? That doesn't work. Yes, so that's a great one. What, any others we can think of? 
Um, I can say when addressing any of the commandments, especially when like correcting a child, focusing only on the action, not the heart behind. Separating out behavior from motivation and acting as though either is good enough by itself. You understand why I say either? There are lots of people who, uh, we, we, we use the term legalist. I think we need better terms because I think these terms have become so loaded with other meanings as to not be very helpful. There's one category of person or there's one type of behavior all of us exhibit sometimes where we do exactly what he just said. We focus on the external. All right, God, I showed up, right? All right, God, I won't hate today. (laughs) Just the extra. But there's another temptation, a type of of person and and a, a type of sin that comes within us that thinks we can have the motivation independent of the external. God, as long as I'm sincere, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, that's pretty weird for a God who spent a whole bunch of time in Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, giving us a whole lot of instructions about what that sincere love for him and neighbor ought to look like. If God was really saying, just choose your own adventure, you guys decide what love looks like, we got a lot of wasted pages in both Testaments. You can't have one without the other and say you're pleasing God. You have to have a heart of love for God and neighbor, and the way that love is manifested there you go. Any other ones you can think of? You see all the ways we get this backwards? That's pretty brutal. <laughs> it's one of the fundamental doctrines, for lack of a better term, of all of Scripture. The entire Old Testament coalesces around this, and then Jesus explodes it in vivid technicolor. And we take the fundamental point of scripture and about somewhere between two and 57 times a week we flip it around we say no I've, I've got a better religion than Christianity I've got one that's based on my perfect performance it's not a better religion not better for any of you other thoughts on Exodus precedes Sinai and the law as a whole. Is that, Jake? I have a question. Um, if, if smarter people may have said that uh, legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same, same coin, coin, really. Yep. How does how does that Jesus plus nothing equal everything type mindset? How would that play into Exodus precedes Sinai? How is that? How do we think through that? How do we do that? What do you think, Jake? <laughs> this is something you've thought about. All right. So the question is just to clarify the question. Um, if you're thinking about the mentality I mentioned that says, you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the second mentality I mentioned where the externals don't matter, you just have the heart, that's enough, don't add anything to that heart, and then what's the error that that would lead you to with respect to Exodus precedes Sinai? Yeah. I guess my my first answer is that it would pretend that Sinai doesn't exist. They're a they're a bundle. The the gospel in in 
y'all know I'm a court nerd. And in the legal world, you talk about a lot of things as like a bundle of sticks. If you have one thing, it's part of a bundle of sticks and you pick up the whole. So if you have property ownership, there are other parts of that bundle of sticks that just come along for the ride because it's together. It's very important that you understand one comes before the other. But it's critically important that you understand Scripture has both. And Scripture has both in both Testaments. Jesus freeing the captives, preaching the day of freedom to those who were enslaved, and also has a lot to say about what it looks like to follow him. And it's not just be sincere. It's what does love for me look like? I think the Apostle John might say something about that a couple times in his epistles. What does the Apostle John say love looks like? Keep my commandments. Now, if you try to keep commandments to earn love, well, now we're back here. We flip this around again. But both Testaments, so clear over and over and over again, this is a bundle of sticks. They come together. It's a whole package, and the order matters. It's the best I got. You can also, I guess, we've made up our own Sinai because in some ways you're still going to have a... That, that's the reason, too, the quote you started with, that legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same coin. Both are making up their own law. When the antinomians say, we don't have to keep the law of God, they're making up their own law. They still have strong opinions about what's right and wrong and good and bad. But instead of those opinions coming from God, they just made them up themselves. Well, what's legalism? Strong opinions about what's right and wrong that doesn't come from God, but you made it up yourself. You're just a little meaner about it. Actually, I got to be honest, my experience in the last 10 or 12 years is that they're not any meaner about it. The licentious, the antinomian no-law folks are really, really judgy. Really judgy. When you say something like, I'm trying to follow Christ closely and obey God, they get really judgy on you. Why? You're a threat to their law. You're a threat to their law. You're saying that their law isn't good enough. Why are you a threat to the legalist? Because you're saying their law isn't good enough. Legalism is deficient. Legalism isn't the law plus a bunch of extra mean stuff. Legalism is sub-law. It's beneath the law. It takes laws of men and elevates them to this status. It's, it's gross. It's, and I, many of us, I bet, have spent time in both of those camps. All of us have times where our hearts swing the pendulum between those two camps. Am I a legalist or an antinomian? Depends on what the rule is and whether or not you're keeping it. Right? I look at my friends who don't keep the law and I say, there is so much freedom and grace in Christ. And I look at my enemies and I'm like, oh, pagan, stupid, licentious. Right? And I look at my friends who are legalists and I say, wow, oh, they are pursuing righteousness. And I look at my enemies who are legalists and I say, they're just Pharisees. They're just piling up heavy loads. And if I'm that way on other people, what do you think I'm doing in here? Y'all, I'm the most righteous of all the righteous people. Whether I'm being pharisaical or whether I'm antinomian, I'm right. That's what my heart says. And then you have to come before God and say, oh, God, you made this so clear. And I made up so much nonsense. And it doesn't even make any sense. That's what's so sad about rejecting the gospel. 
making up all that nonsense doesn't make it easier to be saved because there's still a law that you have to keep. There's still a law without which the keeping of you will not be saved. Even if you're the one who made up the law, you're still going to live and die by that law. And you're going to die by it. How many rules have you made for yourself in your life? Could have been good rules. This thing that you're not going to do anymore. Or this, most of them involve the word never. And then never turns into usually not. And then usually not turns into Thursdays. And then, right, you make these laws for yourself. You can't even keep those. And so whatever you think it means that you've decided to honor your father and mother, make up whatever definition you want. You won't keep it. You won't keep your own laws. So we make up these laws and they're death to us rather than just coming to God and saying, set me free from bondage and show me how to live. Other thoughts on the whole of the law? All right, what about individual commandments? We went pretty quickly through these last week. We said there's really a, a kind of double overlap here where there's sort of a Godward focused and a man focus, but really there's a worship focus on the first four and then an outward, we'll call world and life, Focus on those. You see those divisions? And that's the worship one's really important for helping to understand the first four. Um, anyway, questions about individual ones? Um, what commitment does pride or self-righteousness break? Well, when you are prideful, what are you thinking in your mind? Yep, so which ones do you think are threatened by pride? One, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> right? Now, it's a great question because in the same way that covetousness, covets on the list, but covetousness is implicit in all these commandments. Paul said he learned these commandments when he realized that he was full of covetousness. Pride can, can produce any number of breaking of these. Certainly, uh, one, two, three, five, six, nine, and ten <laughs> flow quickly from pride. <laughs> Other questions about individual ones? All right, let's go in order. First commandment. What are some ways that we could honor and keep the first commandment? Careful about how we use and think about money. Put uh, the gifts of God in their proper place. Okay. What else? Pam? Putting God first in your life. That, um, Give me an example. And your time. Well, time. Time, time especially. Right. Time. To whom does your time belong? 
He gives such great freedom in our time. But aren't there ways we can use our time? Even the six, let's just talk about the six days for a minute. Aren't there ways we could think about our time that is more honoring to God? It's putting the things of God first. I think so. The way I like to think about the first commandment is that I want my affections to be God's affections. And that will order your time. It will order your money. I want to love what God loves. My default position is to love what I love. That is very easy for me. But to stop and ask the question, in this moment, what does God love? And that's actually not a burden. It's freeing to me. When you believe that you're doing the things that God loves, you do so without guilt. You do so with a clean conscience. There's great freedom in that to ask the question, what does God love? And how do I put that before my own love? Because by doing that, I am putting God above all other things. I think that's particularly because if you look at at least five days of the week, many work, right? And God, God made us to work. We are to be productive. And he gave us up to six days to do that work and to be productive and work is good. But how are we working and what are we working for? And is work uh, a, a tool, an institution that God's given us for the purpose of provision and productivity? Or does work become our God? Does work become our identity? For so many of us, work becomes our identity or the fruit of that work. But I also think like when you talk about love, love what God loves at work, it challenges you because you're with all kinds of people. I have, uh, even in the last six to 12 months, I have had to put reminders all over my life that people matter more than outcomes. A more sanctified person probably doesn't need those reminders, but I'm working on it. Right? People matter more than outcomes. It doesn't mean outcomes don't matter. It doesn't mean we can't want to accomplish things. It doesn't mean that we don't want to be excellent. We serve an excellent God, and the things we do, we should do with excellence. But people matter more than outcomes. Second commandment about how we worship. And you remember when we talked last week about this, all these commandments are given with sort of a concrete illustration of a greater principle. So all of these, concrete illustration of a greater principle. And in the second one, the concrete illustration is making and having and worshiping idols. The greater principle is that God is to be worshiped the way God wants to be worshiped. Which, when you say it that plainly, seems to make perfect sense to me. How should we worship God? How about the way God wants to be worshiped? Seems like he might have an opinion on the subject. What are some ways we can honor the second commandment? What are some ways that we can think about it practically in our lives and honor the second commandment? Be careful with the things that we wear or you know, jewelry, things we hang on our walls. Mm. How we illustrate, I feel like it's like an expression of what's inside. It's really easy to turn 
even genuine belief in God and the true God, true into a talisman, into a lucky charm. Right? It, it, and we got to be really, really super, super careful on these things. I, I would say with pretty firm conviction that on an issue like this, let's examine our own hearts and lives and houses and necklaces and not worry about other people so much because you cannot possibly understand the motivation for what they're doing. We can ask one another questions, but I think we should be really, really, really careful. But the, the question is a good one. Am I, how important is this to me and why? Do I think that by having this sign over my living room, I have some sort of special blessing from God that's going to come? Am I using that to make an external show of my religion? Or is that verse comforting to my soul every time I walk by and read it? Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's why we got to be careful. What else? What are other ways we can think about honoring God and being blessed by the second commandment? Being reflective of the worship we're part of thinking through like well, how does this honor God where is this coming from in the scriptures and yeah what are you here for in worship I mean it's such an important question to me in the preparation every Sunday for my own heart is why are you here right now are you here because you want people to see you serve are you here because you want to set a good example for your children there's all sorts of answers to that question that aren't bad, but they're deficient. I'm here because I want to meet with God. Because I need God. And God said, He will show up. And He will have grace. And I need to listen when my mind is distracted because God has shown up and there is grace. And I need to look at these words that I'm singing and I need to sing them no matter how bad my voice is because God said he'll show up and I need grace. I need to join myself in prayer with the person in the pulpit who's praying because God said he would show up. Stop thinking about worship as if something bad is going to happen to you if you don't participate and start thinking about worship as an opportunity that only comes once a week. The corporate worship together under the preaching of the word and sacraments only comes once a week. How much can I get out of it? Well, God's going to show up. It's a pretty good answer to that, isn't it? It's a get to, not a have to. It's a get to. You get something here that God himself says is not available in other ways. Same God, same gospel, but something about what God does with his people on the Lord's day in corporate worship is distinct. No other name. We said the concrete example is not uh, taking the Lord's name in vain which sort of has two forms. One is not abusing, speaking callously or incorrectly, the name and attributes of God. But the second is, you bear the name of God. You call yourself a Christian. 
don't take that name in vain. Don't take the name of a Christian and then live as though you're not a Christian. What's the point? What's the point of being a Christian, saying you're a Christian, if you're not going to live the life of a Christian? The principle behind that, because these commandments are organized around worship, is our attitude toward God. What's the posture, the emotional, mental posture, through which we enter worship, both private in our own lives and public, corporate worship together? What are some ways... All right, this will be the first one I think we really start to get to meddling. What are some ways that we may not think about as mattering very much that if we looked at them through the lens of honoring the third commandment, we may find some benefit? Our speech. The way we talk. The way we talk. We treat humor as a get-out-of-jail-free card in modern society. You can say anything you want if you're making a joke. Is that good? Kind of along those lines is like the variations of the OMG. Like that's kind of come to light is like we hear Luke say that. Or like if it's off-putting for a three-year-old. <laughs> oh my goodness, maybe we shouldn't be saying that. I think that's a great test is if it's off-putting when a three-year-old says it why why and that y'all know i don't want to be the word police i don't but let's try to look at it positively rather than negatively as many of y'all who've known me for a long time know i don't use the word awesome one of the most common words in our culture i don't use the word awesome unless i am describing god or something incredible that god has made that is the only context in which I will ever use that word. Oh, what a legalist. What a, what a language. Do you know the benefit we've derived from that? Is when I use that word, I am overcome with the meaning of that word. When we're standing at the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and I look out over the vista and say to my children, this is awesome. A word they don't hear me use very much. The first thought in my mind after that is, and this is a created thing. If the creation is this awesome, how awesome is God? I don't want to be a legalist and, and police your language. I really don't. I just want to show you that sometimes some of the ways that we can think about honoring the law when they're get-tos rather than have-tos can produce benefits you don't expect. And you'll find that in all of these. If you stop thinking about what I can't do or something bad is going to happen to me and remember that you've been delivered and now you're getting instructions on what life with God can look like, you might be shocked at some of the benefits. Right? Fourth commandment we should just skip, right? Because there's only nine commandments now. No. This is a tough one. Y'all are all in Sunday school. I'm not giving you a hard time about fourth commandment. <laughs> There's no commandment to come to Sunday school. There's a commandment to order the entire day around the kinds of things 
that we know have eternal value that we do not order the other six days around. Worship is one of those things. New Testament tells us plainly, don't forsake this. This is not unimportant. Do not skip. Do not forsake. But is that all Scripture ever says about keeping the Lord's Day? Think about the Pharisees' complaints and, and Jesus' sort of correction of them about the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't want you to do acts of mercy on the Sabbath. And, and it's like Jesus' head wants to explode. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I ordered your days and told you you can't do your normal work on this one. And you think I don't want you to use that extra time for mercy and compassion and love and fellowship? And what? How broken are your brains? Take the things that we know have eternal value and order the day around them. I think the hardest part of keeping both the third and the fourth commandment is the amount of preparation they require. When I break the fourth commandment, it usually started on Saturday. When I break the fourth commandment, there were things that I should have done or prepared for on Saturday. And I didn't want to. I wanted my time to be my time. Which on Saturday itself is not a problem until I get to Sunday and I say to God's time, hey, I need you to give me some of that back. <laughs> I need to use some of that for my purposes today. And again, if you see God as standing up there with a yardstick ready to slap you on the wrist for being a bad Sabbath breaker, you got this wrong. What God is saying is what's in the book of Isaiah where you can almost hear God sighing, oh, dear children, if you would turn your foot aside from going your own way on the Sabbath, and if you would instead walk in my way, and you say, I, I can't do that, God. That's going to be such a burden. Monday's going to be horrible. I just can't do it your way, God. That's going to be bad. And God says, oh, dear child, you would ride on the heights of heaven. And we say, nah, I'll pass. So I don't want to get too into that here, but like, the, the Legalist. wording of the fourth commandment does include the six days you shall labor, do not do any work you or your, like, so where does work specifically play? How does that principle carry in? On all the commandments, we should articulate the principle clearly and boldly. We should evaluate that principle carefully and specifically in our own lives. And with people around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should ask good questions when appropriate. But if any of you take anything I'm about to say and use it to bludgeon someone else over the head, we're, you, you missed what my intent. <clears throat> I think all of us have work. Whether it's outside the home, inside the home, 
whether it's a for-profit business, a non-profit business, I think all of us have work. And the reason that we know what it is is because it's what we're normally doing. When we look at the week ahead and we think about what am I going to do this week, we could make a pretty good list of what we're going to do this week that is our normal course of activity. The things we produce, the things we make, the things we labor over. The Lord says don't do those on Sunday. The Lord says don't do them on Sunday. It's very hard with our children because we're both trying to not make little legalists, right? And we're trying to teach them a very important scriptural principle. Your time is not your own. And God is so gracious that he has given abundant freedom for six-sevenths of your time. Any lawful thing you can do with that time. And then the Lord takes this one day and says, hey, I know you think you know what's best for you, but I made you. And I made this day. And I made this day for a purpose for you. Follow that purpose, not your own. And so if it is the kind of thing that you will find yourself doing, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or the kind of thing in preparation for those activities that you think you will not be successful during the week if you don't take this time now, I think you should examine that issue more closely. Is that careful enough? And I would encourage you in this to quote our uh, dear Reformation brother, Martin Luther. If you're going to if you're going to work on the Lord's day, sin boldly. Don't talk yourself into thinking you're doing something else. Sin boldly. And ask God to convict you if it's wrong. And see what happens. I, I am a teacher. I am an elder and a shepherd. I am not your judge. So what I'll ask you to do is to be honest about what you're doing and go before the Lord. It's a really tough one. It's tough because we don't believe God knows what's best for us. No other commandment reveals more clearly week in and week out that we don't believe God knows what's best for us. Fifth commandment. How do we keep this? So we said the concrete example is fathers and mothers. Got to start there. The principle Never includes less than the concrete example. So we honor our fathers and mothers. The principle is honoring authority. Why? Why do we honor authority? It's delegated. All authority comes from God. All authority that exists on earth is delegated authority. All of it. Yeah, but that guy's a really bad leader. Uh-huh. So am I. <laughs> no, you're, no, pretty bad. All authority comes from God. Kids, your sinful, frustrating, imperfect parents were made your parents by the most high God of the universe. And the moment you think that it is possible for God to be pleased with your eye rolling at your parents, you are making stuff up. God is no more pleased with that than he is pleased with us 
eye-rolling at him. That's, that's just the way it is. And God is teaching you how to submit and obey to un imperfect authority. Because your whole life is going to be submitting to imperfect authority. Yes, I'm telling you personally that you cannot eye roll at the government. That is exactly the kind of uh, law I'm laying down. Where does it fit in when father and mother, when you say that you are, God gave you this father and mother, but the father and mother are not capable or drug addicts or abusers? What does it look like to honor a drug addict? probably easier from the negative. I bet you can think of some ways that you dishonor. Yeah, I can think of lots of ways. Don't do those. <laughs> right? Honor your father and mother. As you become adults and you have your own households, you leave and cleave. That's a real biblical concept. That's not just about, hey, you don't live here anymore, pay your own bills. It's you're establishing a new sphere of authority, which is the, your household. Okay. Does honoring your father and mother at that point look the same as it looked when you were seven? No. But the principle, honor, means do not dishonor. And so thinking through, that's how I have to do it. What does it look like to dishonor someone in this circumstance? I shouldn't do that. <laughs> and that gets me a long way there. <laughs> I mean, I, I find a lot of things that I'm quick to do that dishonor people. And so if I'll just start with, they're an image bearer of God. And they're an image bearer of God that God placed in this position of authority, even if they totally mangle it. What does it look like? It's hard. Fifth commandment, uh, getting practical, is one of the most diverse in terms of what it looks like to keep it. That's probably not true. They're probably all that way. It's just the one I've read about the most. Once you do leave and cleave, is there still an authority? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, with your mother and father. Yeah, I don't know. Because the only thing that would remain under that authority is the responsibility to honor. But they don't have to have authority for you to have to honor them. So I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Just more. because love your neighbor. Right. Something more than that is required. Um, that's a good coffee conversation or, or lunch conversation sometime. You can tell from the practice of ancient Israel, something more than just that was required. Yeah. There were unique practices to Israel in contrast to the other ancient Near East peoples because that commandment existed. Right, he, the Corban thing, he excoriates them for that. They're out of the house. Like they, yeah. yeah. Six through 10. We're running out of time. Throw out some ways that we might be blessed in the keeping of these commandments that we might not be obvious. One for me on the 10th commandment, when I can, by the power of God, sort of tamp down the covetousness within me, I get great opportunities to rejoice with other people. Not just in what they have,
but in what's happening to them and what God is doing in their lives. I don't have to resent other people's joy. I don't have to resent other people's stuff. I can genuinely enter into that gladness with them. That's a, quite a blessing when you can do it. So the thing about the Tenth Commandment for the children in the room is, if you look up there, that you can think of a lot of benefits for breaking them, things that you gain in the moment. Covetousness gains you nothing. Hmm. It just makes you miserable. It's the one set up there that, I mean, all of them will make you miserable, but there's at least some exchange there that makes you Right. Yep. I'm going to get out of trouble or I'm going to gain power or authority. That's good, even though uh, that feels good, even though I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to get stuff that didn't belong to me. There's, there's what we think are benefits. Immediate gratification. Not going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but covetousness just steals life from you. It steals life and joy. And it also makes you want to be around, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uniquely with social media, we, we kind of design platforms yeah. that promote that exact thing. Not that that's hard and fast rule, but... Yeah, if you want to know, kids, why I'm so against social media, <laughs> it's not that I think you're going to see things you shouldn't see. It's not. It's that. It's the life someone presents on social media isn't real. It's like going through the Molnar family photo album and thinking that our photo album from 2022 accurately reflects the sum total of our life in 2022. Look at this trip they took. Look at this place they went. Look at this food they ate. But some of you were there in 2022. It doesn't tell the story. It's not real. And when you look at other people's lives and all you see is that, oh, it just it inflames you. Study after study after study shows you this. This isn't just Christianity. This is, we are not made to observe other people's false narratives and be content with our lives. It's not good for us. When I find myself coveting is easy to fall into, I notice when I do it, which is a lot, it's that I don't trust that God put me where I'm supposed to be and that he's given me what I'm supposed to have. Like, and I'm glad you said that because I, I, I think a lot of us, um, a lot of us don't covet other people's stuff. And so we let ourselves off the hook. But we covet other people's circumstances quite a bit. Dale? I was going to say that 6 through 10 is really easy to, to um, look at the surface and say, well, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. Yep. Even further extension is nobody knows I do that, nobody knows I do that. <laughs> really, if you go to Matthew 5, it's at the heart level. Yeah. And those commandments start deep inside the heart. It's, and that's the thing it's so hard to learn. It's, so bo- learn it, you know, it's, it's both and. You know, Jesus goes to the rich young ruler and says, how you doing? And he says, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Kept all of these since my childhood. And Jesus is face palming. Oh, and then how does it, Dale said it's hard. How does that story end? 
And he says, oh, I can't wait to keep the law fully and I will follow you, Jesus. Is that how it ends? He went away sad. Why did he go sad? Because Jesus said, change your heart. Change your heart. You're not even keeping this stuff. You just think you are. Change your heart. That's it. Looking at uh, do not murder. Beyond the surface level, you don't get the jail time that comes with murder. Looking at the deeper part of hatred towards other people. Hatred in your heart is like a black tar covering up everything else. Um, and it, it kills your ability to be Christ-like. If you, and if you hate just even one person or one group of people, that tends to spread. It tends to get worse as you kind of dig deeper into that. You become resentment of everything else around you because of a deep hatred. So, you know, beyond just not killing someone, and it's, showing love to everyone is hard, especially when those people are terrible, terrible people. And it's a slippery slope. I mean, the reason why murder, anger, hate are connected in Scripture is because they are on the same slope. Look at Israel and Gaza. It, you, you, you think you can just hate and demonize people in your heart. Yeah, but I'm never the kind of maniac that... That's what happens. You dehumanize, you hate. You either love life, all life, or you start having categories of life that are less than. And first, you just treat them as less than. But make no mistake, that is exactly on the same slope that then says, let's do genetic testing on preborn babies and kill the ones that have something wrong with them. They're just going to be a burden on society anyway. Where do you think that slope started? It started with looking at human beings alive, made in the image of God, with mental disabilities, and saying it'd be better if that type of person didn't exist. Oh, but I'm not a monster. I wouldn't kill anybody. Yeah, it, it matters deeply.